of the Bible, uh, please open it to Acts chapter 16, and if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're covering a big portion of Acts chapter 16, but for this passage, for this reading, we're going to just read verses 23 to 31. That's on page 925, if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. So again, Acts chapter 16, verses 23 to 31. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he threw his sword, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, "Do not harm yourself, for we are all here." And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought he, then he brought them out and said, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" And they said, "Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. Good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm part of our teaching team. I get to walk us through this longer passage here this morning. And uh, before we get started, I want to just kind of make an observation about life, and it's this. Some things don't go together. Some things don't go together. Like, for example, oil and water, you mix them, it kind of doesn't go together. It doesn't go well. Humans, Arizona summers, doesn't go together. There's a problem. It doesn't belong It shouldn't happen, but it does, and here we all are in July in Arizona. We're the dumb ones. Or, for example, people from U of A and people from ASU, they don't go together. That doesn't work like that. Just kidding. My wife went to U of A, and so, anyway, I would say something else about U of A and civilization, but that didn't happen or things like that. So, anyway, we are where we are. So, things don't go together. Some things don't happen. It doesn't work. You try and mix it. It gets all messed up. Things don't really click. And a lot of times what happens is when people come to faith, when people become Christians, they kind of assume that like their life, the way it is, how that's been going, kind of their default mode, if they just add Jesus to that, it'll just go together. It'll just click. There won't be any conflict. Like I had some, I was missing something, now I have it, but everything else kind of stays fundamentally intact. And what we're going to see here in this passage is that's actually not true. That when the kingdom of God, by the Holy Spirit, enters into our lives, both as individuals and as corporate collections of people, it disrupts what's going on. That it's like oil and water. The kingdoms of this earth, our natural state, and the kingdom of God are fundamentally incompatible. And when we say that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, we're not saying that it's somewhere else. We're saying it's not of the same substance. It's like oil and water. It doesn't go together. It's fundamentally different. And so if we believe that when the kingdom of God comes to earth, as the book of Acts talks about, that Jesus began something in the Gospels and now he's continuing to do something in and through the Holy Spirit, that the book of Acts is showing us what does it look like when the kingdom of God comes to earth, that at a fundamental level, everything must 
change. Everything must be disturbed. Everything must be disrupted. In this passage that we have right here, there's actually a verse smack dab in the middle of it, and it's Acts 16, verse 20. Will you read Acts 16, verse 20 with me? And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, they are disturbing our city. Before we even get rolling, when is the last time that the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus, disturbed you? It disrupted your status quo, it threw you off. Was it last week? Was it a long time ago? Do you kind of feel like you're done with that stuff? Like I was over here, now I'm over here, and I'm kind of going the course. When's the last time that happened? So what happens here in this passage is a whole city is disrupted and disturbed by the gospel. And here's kind of what this story looks like. So this whole chapter we have, or this whole section we have, is when Paul goes to Philippi, who he wrote the letter Philippians to. And so what we're looking at is what does it look like when the kingdom of God comes to Philippi? And so here's what happens. The Spirit first leads Paul towards Philippi. He had other plans. God changes his plans. He messes with his plans. And Paul ends up going to Philippi after seeing a vision. And the first thing he does there is he finds us a group of women, one of which is Lydia. And Lydia's kind of like got a lot of things going on for her. She's pretty solid, it seems like, in the world's eyes. But then God opens her eyes and she comes to faith in the Lord and she's baptized. Right after that, Paul's kind of walking around and there's this really annoying slave girl who's possessed by a demon who's just literally annoying Paul. And so Paul, out of the fruit of his annoyance, sets her free from this demon and then her owners are all mad because they were making money off this girl's circus act. And so then what happens is they take Paul and say, hey, that guy took away our cash and they throw him in prison. They beat him up. He's all locked up. Him and Paul, Paul and Silas are locked up. They're singing hymns to God in the middle of the prison. And then this miraculous earthquake happens and they kind of have the opportunity to go free and instead they stay. Then what happens is this jailer who probably should have died because the jail got all set free, hears the gospel from Paul and becomes a Christian and him and his household receive the word and they believe and are baptized. Things are kind of all shaken up and then Paul has this opportunity at the end to go free and he's like, no, before I leave Philippi, I need to give a lecture to the political leaders here about how they treat their citizens. So that's kind of the whole story we get here is Philippi happens, Lydia's converted, there's this kind of circus act thing that happens and people are mad, the jailer gets converted, then Paul lectures the politicians and then he gets on out of town. And here's what we're gonna see here, what I think this passage is really, the overall thrust is saying is that this, that the kingdom of God disrupts individuals, Lydia's disrupted, Paul is disrupted, the jailer's disrupted, but it also disrupts systems that the economics, the way people made money, and the politicians, their systems of power, they're disturbed as well. And so the kingdom of God, when it comes to Philippi, it undoes a bunch of stuff for a bunch of people. And what I hope is gonna happen in this passage is we start to see the ways in which the kingdom of God, right here, right now, by the Spirit, is going to disturb us. That I hope that all of us here walk out after hearing this passage and have our feathers ruffled a little bit. Let me pray and then we're gonna dive into this passage. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for great songs that we just sung. All I have is Christ. I pray for the people in this room who uh, 
aren't totally sure why they're here, that you'd speak to them, that you'd translate what I say to their hearts so that they can hear from you directly. I pray for all the non-Christians that are here. I'm glad that they're here. I pray that they can see how you change lives. Pray for all of us who've been really comfortable for a long time, who feel like you're done disturbing our life, that you'd ruffle our feathers and show us a better way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we kind of having a feel for the story, I want to look at a place here where Paul himself, the apostle, gets his, gets his life shaken up and it's kind of a whole thing. Look with me first um, in Acts 16, verses 6 through 9. So this is how Paul gets called to go to uh, Philippi. So, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. That's a big place. The Holy Spirit shuts their mouth. We don't know how the Holy Spirit forbid him. We just know that he did. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Again, we don't know how the Spirit did this. We just know that he did. So passing to Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Philippi is a kind of a suburb of Macedonia. So notice here just in this passage real quick that Paul has plans, he has a schedule to keep, he has an idea of where God's going to take him, and then all of a sudden the Spirit forbids him to do what his plans were. We don't know how the Spirit led him, we just know that the Spirit led him. In the second instance, when, God, when he gets a vision and calls him to go to Philippi, that, in that instance we see kind of concretely how the Spirit works. That sometimes the Spirit gives visions, sometimes it's more ambiguous. For example, when Taylor and I first came over here to come to Redemption uh, Gateway, we're part of this CrossFit gym back in Tempe for a long time. We're trying to pray through whether we keep going there. It's kind of a long drive versus finding a gym out here. And like all the facts and figures stay, it's closer and cheaper to go out here. But then as we're kind of praying through that, God opened up all these little relational doors and there's all these opportunities for why we should stay out there. So in that instance for Taylor and I, God led us to stay at that CrossFit gym through pretty ordinary means. It was, I met some people and I really felt like this is kind of a good thing, I'll keep it going. I didn't get a vision or anything like that that God said do CrossFit there. And uh, sometimes that could happen, it just hasn't happened to me yet. Um, So kind of the point here is this, that God has the authority to change your plans and sometimes it's clearly, it's clear how he works and sometimes it's less clear how he works. When's the last time God changed one of your plans? What if right now, God is in the works of changing significant things about what you plan to do in the future. Are you okay with that? Some of the biggest losses that people have come when God changes people's plans and they don't like it at all. Because sometimes it's significantly harder than the otherwise. I thought I'd work there till I retired. I thought I'd have more kids by now. I thought I'd live there forever. I thought I'd have that house for longer. I thought I was going to marry her, then she dumped me. (laughs) These are difficult things we have to work through. Does God have the authority in your life to change your plans? Is it okay if he breaks into your life and disrupts what you have going on? Because it happens to Paul, and Paul seems pretty in tune with the Spirit. He makes plans, but he keeps going after something. Some people just kind of sit around and wait for a vision. Paul's running after something till he hits a closed door. No, he's running after something till he hits a closed door. No, then God opens an opportunity. 
when you're hitting closed doors, are you able and do you, do you believe in enough of a sovereign God that God's the one they're closing doors? Do you believe he has different and better plans for you, different and better plans for his kingdom? Believing God in the nitty-gritty details of sovereignty is a huge part of our growth. So that's one way Paul gets ruffled and gets disturbed by the gospel is just literally the spirit is telling him no on his plans. Let's look at the second way in this passage that Paul gets um, disturbed by the gospel. This one's probably more clear and more obvious. We talked about it earlier already. Read with me in verse 22, Acts 16, 22. This is later on after Paul cures the lady circus act. Um, people don't like him anymore because he's taking away their cash. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore off tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So, Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, ends up in a pretty terrible place. Hey, Jesus, remember that whole, like, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will thing? Yeah, where is it? I did what you said and now I'm here. Kind of throws me off. It does throw me off. It really does. Because I kind of grew up thinking like when God leads me, it's going to be to greener pastures. When God leads me, it's going to be to these cool streams of water. For Paul, when God leads him, it ends up being him being wrongly imprisoned, beaten, shamed, and trapped up in a little jail cell. I heard a pastor say, we had the quote kind of circling in our uh, pre-announcement slides, that, this, that the center of God's will is simultaneously the safest and the most dangerous place you can be. It's totally a paradox. It's totally a both and. And so here's what blows my mind most about this is Paul gets pretty dang messed up. God throws him off his plan, says, don't worry, I have a wonderful plan for your life and it's going to prison and being falsely accused. Do what I say instead. And then Paul in verse 25 is in prison, probably pretty upset as I would assume, probably really grumpy and complaining about things. That's what I would do. In verse 25, we see Paul say this. And midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. You ever read things that humans do in scripture and you go, well, 0% chance I would have done that. <laughs> but sometimes it's like legitimately discouraging. You read that and you go, hmm, that's good for Paul. That's not what I would do. That's not, pass. I would be the one grumbling and complaining and frustrated about injustice, invoking all types of things. And like, so I read this and I go, how? How, Paul? How do you do that? It's so unnatural. That's the, the least natural reaction is the worst thing happens to me and I'm gonna sing praises to God. How is that even a thing? How does that happen? Fortunately, Paul wrote some books and one of them was to the Philippians and so these Philippians observed Paul's life and then a while later, after he's like spoiler alert, freed from prison, um, he writes a letter to them and he says a couple things that help me kind of understand the how. How is Paul able to do this? So this is Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Okay, got it. I failed. Now what? That's like, but Paul does that. He's in prison. He's not grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Cool. That's just kind of a command that I pretty much always fail to obey. Um, still don't know how to do it. Okay, later in this book, Paul says this in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Okay, sweet. Failing still. Don't really know how to do this yet. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but, by, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So I remember reading that passage when I was in high school and thinking, this is a bunch of power of positive thinking, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, just focus on the positive things. I'm like, yeah, but what if like you're really in pain? What if things are actually really bad? Like you don't tell people who are in deep, deep suffering like, yeah, but what's the good thing here? You know, like it just felt really kind of backwards, but that's exactly what Paul does. Paul is in prison, wrongly accused, beaten, victim of the mob, chained up, and he's literally saying, if there's anything worthy of praise, guess what's worthy of praise? The Lord Jesus. But here's the catcher here. Here's what really clicked it for me. We have one of our lay counselors named Heidi and she um, works with a handful of people here and she was talking to me about this passage and she's talking about this do not be anxious thing and it's not just kind of like a, a, a slave driver whipping people saying be not anxious. Oh, you're anxious? Whipped. Stop being anxious. Every time you're anxious like God's there just telling you not to. But the centerpiece of this passage is actually that, that phrase, the Lord is at hand. That because the Lord is near to you, because like Jesus said, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age, because of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near, it's close. Because Paul is so in touch with the proximity, the presence, the reality of God's presence, he is able to praise God in the midst of his circumstances. He doesn't say, I'm alone all by myself, I'm a victim here, nothing's wrong. He also doesn't go around calling good bad and calling black white. He's able to acknowledge all the terribleness, but at the same time, because he's aware of the closeness of God's presence, he's able to pray and to sing in the midst of his terrible suffering. I all the time get super grumpy and complain about things. Uh, I, you could ask my wife later, probably like 85% of the fights we've been in have been when it's like a little bit hotter than I want it to be and I get all grumpy and irritable and I just kind of like become all depersonal and, and uh, slouchy and she kind of graciously over time keeps telling me that's unacceptable and I need to get over it. But you think about like when it's like 81 in my house and I'm like, what's going on here? You know, and it's, compared to Paul's in prison in shackles and he's praising the name of the Lord, I don't like, I don't think I've ever been aware of God's presence, like right in the moment, right now, being God is at hand, the Lord is with me, and also been like an irritable basket case. I don't think I've ever had both those happen at the same time. If you wanna be the type of person that when God changes your plans and when you're placed in the midst of these terrible environments, if you want to be the type of person who can praise God in the midst of that environment, you have to be a person who dwells on the fact that the Lord is at hand. He is near, he is not far off, he is God with us, and the Spirit is with you everywhere you go. Whether you're sent to prison or you're sent to the AC fix-it repairman place, the Lord is at hand. God disrupts Paul. Secondly, we see this. God disrupts Lydia. Read with me in uh, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Only the women go to pray, not a lot of faithful men in Philippi. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia 
from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who's a worshiper of God. So Lydia's pretty great here. Lydia's like a small business entrepreneur. She sells purple, which is a really, really valuable garment. So she's kind of got this like single, don't need a man, got a business going, pretty self-sufficient, head of my household. Things are going pretty good. By all accounts and purposes, you'd see Lydia and think, she has money in the bank, she's doing fine. She's kind of like, Thyatira is kind of like Manhattan. She's like that solid professional woman who's not kind of like just following the traditional um, narrative of what people like her are supposed to do. She's doing her own thing and she's doing pretty good. She's also a worshiper of God. Now that doesn't mean that she's a Christian. It means that she believes that there is a God and she's kind of exploring the faith. A lot of Greeks at this time were starting to reject the Greek pantheon that there's multiple gods. We're starting to come back to kind of a more platonic vision that there's one higher God who's over everything. And so she's kind of believing that there's a God, but she's not really sure about Jesus. She's very much like a financially successful, spiritual, but not religious person here. She's praying, but she doesn't want to put a name to it because she's not totally certain. And, but that she's still open. She's a seeker. She's ready to hear and Paul comes up to her and read with me in verse 14. She's a seller of purple goods who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So what was said by Paul? Look at in verse 10. Paul went to preach the gospel to them. So she's there to pray to her nameless, faceless God. Did I believe in a God? Yeah, I believe in God. He's just up there somewhere or whatever he is. She's kind of praying, doing the spiritual thing, and Paul comes to her and preaches the gospel to her, which is God took on flesh, Jesus, fully God and fully man, not that long ago. He lived a perfect life. He walked among us. He was full of the spirit and wisdom, and he lived sinlessly, perfectly, in the way that you're trying to live, in the way that I'm trying to live, he's leaps and bounds beyond that. Without fault, he walked a perfect life. But then they killed him because he said he was the king of the Jews. But also that death wasn't just about politics, it was also about eternity. That his death, he absorbed the wrath of God onto him of all who would eventually believe in his name. But he didn't end there. Three days later, he rose from the dead and he, by his spirit, is here among us now and he's gonna come back to judge the living and the dead. And if you believe in him, you can be joined to him by faith and you can be a part of his kingdom. And Lydia, the spiritual but not religious woman, hears this and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention and she gets baptized in her household. So here's what happens is you kind of have the spiritual but not religious, agnostic person who is set free from their deism, set free from their belief in a vague God and is introduced to the person Jesus. A lot of times we think that like being spiritual but not religious is actually freeing because you're not submitting to any system, but it's actually another form of slavery. I was talking to someone from my gym the other day and she was talking about how um, like she believes in God and she's doing pretty well with her life. She has a kid, so she's kind of like checking the normal boxes of what you should be to be a quote-unquote successful person. And she goes, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm just not gonna worry about it because I'm just doing the best I can to be good and I believe that God's probably a reasonable guy and that at the end when I die that he'll smile on me if I did my best and that he'll kind of say like good job you're better than other people and if I do good enough and if I try hard enough that'll be good I'll be fine God wouldn't 
send someone with good intentions like me out of his presence. And I just said, wow, that, so you're, you don't know? Like you feel like you're gonna work really hard and then hopefully you're assuming that he's just gonna like appreciate your in, intentions? She's like, yeah, but I, kn- I know that like I have to really try to be good and I have to try to be good enough and that'll be, that'll be enough. And I said, well, how do you know if you're good enough? I mean, like, compared to Hitler, like, yeah, we're all pretty good. But, like, compared to Mother Teresa, I feel like we're kind of screwed. Like, that's not, like, a great, that's not a great thing. And she's like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of, yeah. <laughs> and, and I said, that sounds like a lot of pressure. She says, oh, it's an incredible amount of pressure. I know I have to wake up every day and do my best. Otherwise, it's not going to be good for me. And so this spiritual but not religious thing seems like you can do whatever you want. But really, then you're trying to live up to your own standard, which we fail to live up to our own standards anyway. I can't even live up to the own standard that I create, much less to God's standard. And so if you're in this room and you're like Lydia, single woman, or a single man, or just whatever it is, you're kind of doing fine. In the world's eyes, you, don't, you have a lot going for you. You might believe in a God, but maybe not the person of Jesus, fully God, fully man, in the flesh, crucified, risen, and coming again. He's a better master than you are for yourself. He's a better king. God disrupts Lydia. He frees her from her agnosticism and introduces her to himself. Next one we see is this jailer gets his life messed up. So God messes with Paul, God messes with Lydia, now God's gonna mess with this Philippian jailer. Read with me in verse 25, Acts 16, 25. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Kind of a prime time opportunity to get away. <laughs> earthquake happens, sweet, I'm out. I'm already imprisoned wrongfully, might as well take the opportunity. Verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors are open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So this jailer is probably more of like a blue-collar guy. You know, Lydia was the fancy entrepreneur who like read books and prayed. The jailer is probably kind of like, I got my job, I'm good to go, got a lot going for me. I got my family at home, job, family, simple man. He's not like out there just contemplating life. He doesn't have the luxury of doing that. He's got a hard job. It's a lot going on. And what happens is the foundation of his job goes away and his first reaction is to kill himself. Now this would have been fairly typical that if you're a Roman centurion and people escape from the prison you're guarding, your punishment is death. So he's probably going, you know what, I'm just going to make it easier on everybody. I'm just going to kill myself before they have to mess with me. Then I'm going to let everybody down. I've let everybody down already. These prisoners got away. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to be able to have to look my wife in the eyes and explain to her what happened. I don't, I'm going to tell them that there's people singing and an earthquake happened. Nobody's going to believe me. They're not going to listen. The shame, so the shame and the nobody's going to believe me and it'd be easier if I wasn't here starts adding up. So he goes, you know what? I'm done. I'm just going to call it. Verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Cyrus, Silas. Now, why is he afraid of Paul and Silas? 
He's heard this guy, he's heard these people singing and then their God causes an earthquake and then they're free to go and they stay. These guys are weird, right? Nobody stays when they could have run out of prison. We know that we wrongfully imprisoned them and they have opportunity to leave and these crazy people just hang out. It's a stupid idea. These people must have something crazy going on. What's their deal? So he comes in there and he's trembling with them like your God made an earthquake happen and then you had the opportunity to run away so that I would die and you stayed. What's the deal? So he says to them, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So here's what's, this jailer is comfortable in his job and a crisis happens and God shakes the foundation of his workplace. And he sees Paul and Silas and thinks, these guys have some type of weird otherworldly security that they'd be fine with just hanging out in prison and be fine with singing hymns to their God while they're locked up. Something's different about these guys. And as soon as this miracle happens, he goes, I want to be a part of what they have going on. That this jailer sees in his crisis how Paul is reacting to his crisis. And he goes, I see what Paul's hap- how Paul's handling his crisis. I need that right now for my crisis. What can I do? How can I get in? How can I be a part of what you have going on? And the, the catch here is this. Is that the jailer was free, but Paul and Silas were in prison. But in reality... In the true and greater realm where Paul and Silas were the, actually the ones free and the jailer was the one who was actually imprisoned to his sin and death. The reason Paul and Silas don't go running out of the prison is because they know that they're already free in Christ. And the reason the jailer runs into the prison is because he knows that he's the one really in shackles because something is holding him down and holding him back and he doesn't know what it is. Even though they're in prison, they're still free. And even though he's free, he's really the one imprisoned. And Paul and Silas don't go running out of the prison. Here's why. It's because they know that it already cost Jesus his life for them to be set free from their punishment to sin and death. And they don't want it also to cost the jailer's life because Jesus' life was sufficient for their salvation. They don't need the jailer to give his life for them to go free. They needed Jesus to give his life for them to go free. And so they do not let the jailer kill himself, which is what they would have done if they ran off. If they ran off, death sentence for the jailer, but they stay. Some of you might be in the jailer's position right now where God has shaken the foundation to the thing that you once found security in. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a house. Maybe it was a job. Some of you are in Paul's situation and you're going through it right now and you get to decide in the midst of my crisis how will I be a witness to the other people who are in crisis? Because the Lord is at hand. He is with you. And he is willing to afflict you and to disrupt you in the short term if it means that in the long term you know him. God has eternity in mind. And he'll do whatever it takes to get your attention and he gets the jailer's attention. They hear the word, they receive the word, they believe, and they're baptized. So all these individuals are disrupted. Paul's plans are changed, he's imprisoned. Lydia is kind of agnostic, has a lot going for her. She meets the true Jesus. The jailer thinks he's kind of solid and secure, but he loses that and he meets true security in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Which of those three do you immediately identify with? Are you kind of like 
all systems go. You need to be ready for God to change your plans. Are you like Lydia? You're kind of spiritually seeking, but you haven't yet given yourself to the Lord Jesus, the God with a face and with a name. Or are you like the jailer who God's kind of eroding things in your life and you're gonna have to cling to him God also disrupts systems. Now, systems are, uh, is a term that's a little more complex. It's a little different than what I'm used to. So systems are the way in which a collective society or a collective group of people all organize together. So the Philippians had an economic system. They have a political system. And especially when it comes to people who aren't following the Lord Jesus, and even those of us who still are, we have this idolatrous love of the wrong things in common that when we all get band together as fallen humans and organize in a certain way, we're gonna organize in fallen ways. So when the kingdom of God comes to earth, it's not just him doing work on individual hearts, but it's also him undoing some of the ways in which those individuals have organized themselves in sinful and rebellious ways. In this passage, we see two things that get messed up. The first one is economics, and the second one is politics. Look at me with um, verse 16, Acts 16, 16. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So these owners, that's a key word, that means that they own her. These aren't great guys. They see this woman with kind of like this oppressive thing going on and they go, I can make cash off that. So they kind of start this one, one woman circus. They probably like walk around by a leash super dehumanizing they're like come on come all snake charmers come see the show come see the show and people walk up and are like tell me the future and they throw money at her and she's totally plagued not a great look for these guys and she starts yelling at these paul and the guys saying these men are servants of the most high who proclaim to you the way of salvation you go oh that sounds pretty true that sounds nice um, and then 18, and she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, Paul's still a person too, turns and says to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now you go, now why is Paul doing this? Come on, this lady is saying true things. But you can imagine that if I'm standing up here trying to teach the Bible and there's a clown jumping up and down saying, Jesus risen, Jesus risen, Jesus risen, it's gonna make you take what I'm saying less seriously. It's gonna make you go, what is this, a circus or a synagogue? What's happening here? And so that's kind of what's happening. Is this, this circus act woman who is oppressed by a demon is running around saying true things in a way that's distracting from what Paul is going on. So Paul, in his moment of annoyance, goes like, just get out. And he casts a demon out, out of his kind of like what was initially selfish motivation. Kind of like the sidebar point here is this, is that God will use your bad motivations to accomplish his good goal, even if you do good things, even if they come from a bad heart. That doesn't mean it's okay to have bad motivations. It means that God is bigger than your bad motivations. Paul here is kind of like, I'm annoyed, I'm sick of this, get out demon. So in his bad motivation, he does a good thing. So repent of bad motivations, but also don't stop doing good things, even if they come from bad motivation so he casts this woman out of here you're kind of like sweet it comes out at this very hour so the woman goes from like clown mode to like person mode all of a sudden and she just goes walking off we don't know what happened to her so lydia believes in his baptized the jailer believes in his baptized but in the middle there's this woman who has her demon cast out and she's just freed from economic oppression she's freed from slavery and she's kind of good to go 
And I think one of the main reasons here that Luke includes this story in between the two conversion stories is he's trying to help us see that when the kingdom of God comes to earth, people's lives are made better even if they're not converted. That the only kingdom work isn't just souls repenting and believing, but the slaves being set free, that people being removed from economic bondage into freedom. That kingdom work involves more than just people coming to faith and repentance, but it also involves God's people setting people free from their oppression. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. So notice here, God sets her free and these people lose hope. They seize Paul and Silas and drag them in the marketplace. They make up lies about them and throw them into prison. Here's the point here to notice, is that what you love determines what you see. What you love determines what you see. We see this woman oppressed by demons and enslaved, and we see a person made in the image of God who has inherent dignity and value. We are called to love our neighbors and see people who are in oppression, see people who are um, in sex slavery, see people who are in all types of slavery, see people who are um, misguided and enter into the sex trade, who enter into being sex workers of their own will. We should see these people and see them as people in the image of God with dignity and value who need to be set free by the Lord Jesus. These evil men see this woman who's afflicted and they see an opportunity to make cash. They love money, they see an opportunity. We should love neighbors and see someone who needs to be set free. What you love determines what you see. And if you love money, you will be prone to all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. These people loved money and that enabled them to dehumanize a woman in need. This is capitalism in its most negative sense. I'm going to capitalize on the brokenness of others for the sake of my own financial gain. That's not all capitalism, but that capitalism is demonic and evil. The kingdom of God comes and it changes the economic system such that people are mad. Hey, all of our slave girls are getting set free. What the heck? Where's the cash in my pocket? These men witness a miracle from God most high and all they see is their wallet got thinner. What you love determines what you see. These men love money and they will not see the miracle of the work of God. If you're a non-Christian and you're here today, I've heard many non-Christians say this, hey, if God shows me a miracle, if God shows up, if I see God move, then I'll believe. And I hope that's true, I really do. I hope God shows up and moves in your life in a way that really throws you off. I hope he disrupts your mode of living. But here's an example of two guys who their biggest problem was not that they hadn't seen miracles, but their biggest problem was their love of money. They see a miracle and the shadow of their love of money overshadows their ability to see God at work. Maybe the reason you're not a Christian isn't because you haven't seen a miracle. Maybe it's because you love something else that you don't want to give up. Is that a possibility? God's kingdom disrupts the economics. And then lastly, God's kingdom disrupts the politics. Politics um, comes from the word polis, which means like a community of people. So how people organize. So here's what kind of blows my mind. Read with me um, in verse 35. 
But when it was that day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. It's like, oh yeah? Is it because I broke their prison and they're scared of me? Sweet, good for them. Yeah, yeah, good job, guys. Like, oh, let them go before they break our next prison too. You know, they're kind of getting a reputation at this point. Um, Let them go. And Paul's not impressed. He says, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. So this is Paul getting a little snarky here. He goes, they think that they can just let us out of prison and I'm just going to be fine with this? Yeah, right. Paul invokes his Roman citizenship as a means of critiquing the political order in Philippi. Now, I'm trying to ask this question. Why did Paul not do that sooner before he got beaten up and thrown into prison? That feels like something that'd be great to do back around verse 19. They grab him on Times Square and he goes, hey guys, I'm a citizen. You can't do this. And they go, oh, you're right. Never mind. See you later. He like waits I'm like, Paul, you could have skipped this whole thing. Why'd you spend all this time um, in prison? Why does he wait? One couple of commentators I read said this, because Paul is less concerned about his rights being observed, and he's more concerned about the rights of all the citizens of Philippi. That Paul's about to leave. He literally lectures the magistrates, they apologize, and he pieces out and goes somewhere else. He doesn't reap any of the benefits of this lecture he gives. Other people do. Because Paul is more concerned about other people being treated well than he is concerned about himself being treated well. He's going, I just planted this church here. All these people are Christians. I don't want them to suffer what I just suffered. All these people in Philippi are victims of these evil, oppressive magistrates who just go around whipping people as the crowd desires. That's not a just government. The Roman government said they were tolerant. The Roman government said they were supposed to be this good society. And Paul calls them to task, literally by doing like a 1960s style, heck no, we won't go sit in. You need to leave. No, make me. So Paul, the apostle, made up I don't know, maybe people did it before him, but he's the first person that I'm aware of that did a sit-in to the sake of pushing back on the unjust local government. Paul, standing up for justice, he doesn't say, hey, bring the magistrates here. Hey, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. He brings the magistrates in and he says, unjust rulers, repent. Treat your citizens like you say you treat them. It's similar with us as Americans. We see of this constitution that says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And our government has consistently failed to make that available to every single citizen, man, woman, child. And so part of the kingdom of God is calling the local government to task to be just. So when the kingdom of God comes, it changes individuals' lives, but it's also undoing systems of economic oppression and it's calling local governments to justice. Do you see both of those realities? Typically, more liberal people will see the systemic undoing in the kingdom of God and say, yes, make society better. And typically, more conservative people will see the saving of individual souls and say, yes, you must repent and believe. And I want to say the Bible says both. The kingdom of God both disrupts individuals and it disrupts systems. There's not a single thing that gets untouched by the kingdom of God. That when God's kingdom comes to earth by the spirit, not a stone remains unturned. 
So what are some of the things that God's going to have you be an agent of disruption for? What are some of the things that right now God is disturbing in your heart? I think about our Lord Jesus, who is pretty, doing pretty good in heaven, sitting on the throne, things are going well, he's comfortable. And then the time comes for him to leave heaven, take on flesh, come to earth, and be a servant. And even just in the context of the sermon, how Philippi gets so disrupted, and how Jesus gives up this comfort. He's disrupted from his heavenly throne and takes the form of a servant. And he walks among us, dies in my place, dies in our place, and rises from the dead. And he's right now involved with us by his spirit. And I'm thankful that Jesus, of his own free will, allowed himself to be disturbed and disrupted so he could act as a savior of the world and that even right now that he's like this good father who hears my prayers at all times that whenever I pray the Lord Jesus hears me by the spirit and is among me and with me and leading me and guide me and that right now as the spirit conflicts my heart and convicts my soul and leads me into a different way in a new way God is with me enabling me to receive my disruption well and to call me into a holier way of living. And I hope that you right now don't hear, be better, be disrupted, but rather God is disrupting you and by the spirit you can receive that well and give thanks at all times because the Lord is with you, the Lord is at hand. Let me pray and we're gonna continue singing. Lord, you are good to us. Whenever you disturb us, it's because you see a greater good than we can see for ourselves. God, we know that you lead us into crisis, sometimes to get our attention and sometimes to help others who are in crisis. We know that you're with us here now, leading us by your spirit. I pray that as you disrupt us, as you challenge our worldview, as you challenge our affections, as you show us a true and greater way, I pray that we can be a people who receive the disturbance you give us and walk more faithfully after the path you've led us towards. In Jesus' name, amen.